Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and thanks for joining us for this episode of New Books in Philosophy, which is part of the New Books Network. I'm Robert Felice. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the program with Carrie Figder, Malcolm Keating, and Sarah Tyson. My guest today is Michael Cholby. Michael is chair in philosophy at the University of Edinburgh. His research focuses on moral issues concerning death and dying. His new book has just been published with Princeton University Press. It's titled Grief, A Philosophical Guide. We think of grief as a normal response to the death of a loved one. We're familiar with the so-called five stages of grief. And so grief seems to us as an emotional episode that befalls us along life's way. Something to be endured but then gotten over. But maybe grief isn't as straightforward as it may seem. For one thing, we can grieve for strangers. And although there seems to be something like a duty to grieve, it's not clear to whom that duty could be owed. Perhaps grief is indeed a psychologically normal response to death, but might it nonetheless be bad for us to grieve? Now, despite these questions, there's been surprisingly little attention given to grief among philosophers. But with his new book, Michael Cholby seeks to buck that trend. Now, as usual, there's a lot to talk about. So lucky for us, we've got the author with us. Hi, Michael. Hello, Bob. How are you today? I'm well. It's the time of year here in Edinburgh where the days get awfully short. So even though it's only four in the afternoon, it is entirely dark here. <laughs> well, um, it's a uh, unseasonably warm day in Nashville, I'm sorry to say. I think it's like 64 degrees or something in the you know, middle of December. Um, but <laughs> what all of that portends aside, um, uh, can you tell us a bit about yourself? Certainly. Um, so as my accent betrays, I am not Scottish. Uh, I was born and raised in Portland, Oregon in the United States. Um, but subsequent to my adolescence in Oregon, I lived in several regions of the U.S. Uh, on the East Coast um, predominantly before I uh, had an extended stint in the Southern California area from 2003 to 2020. And subsequent to that, I, I took up a position here, uh, here in Edinburgh uh, in Scotland. Um, I think the fact that I'm, I'm living and working now in Scotland and teaching at this institution is, is very surprising to me and quite remarkable, I think, in light of my own biography. I um, came from a family that did not have a uh, history of uh, people attending university or anything like that. I was the first uh, person in my family really to attend university in a traditional way and certainly the first to uh, you know, pursue doctoral studies. So as I reflect back on my own uh, journey, I guess. Uh, it strikes me as quite astonishing that I'm, I'm living and working where I am now. Um, 
but you know, before I became a philosopher, uh, I think my main professional ambition was to be a sports writer. Actually, I was going to be a journalist and, and cover, uh, you know, the World Series and the Super Bowl and things like that. Um, but as as is often the case, you go off to university and you're exposed to, uh, you know, new ideas, new traditions of thought. And as a freshman, I took a course on the culture and history of the European Enlightenment. And this is a course where we, uh, you know, looked at the major political developments of the, of the Enlightenment, you know, looked at the French and American revolutions and things like that. We also listened to a lot of opera, right, which was a, you know, important, <laughs> important development within, within the Enlightenment. And, and I learned uh, a little bit about opera and, and I suppose gained whatever um, modest appreciation understanding of opera I have from that. Um, but in the in the uh, in that course, you know, we also looked at at some of the major philosophical figures uh, within Enlightenment philosophy. You know, took a look at at people like Rousseau and Hume and Kant, and I enjoyed the whole course. But it's really the philosophers that really uh, you know excited me and it intrigued me. And in fact, the instructor commented on on most of the essays that I submitted for the course, that the essays were too philosophical for, for a course in the history of ideas. Um, you know, you, you, should, you should be over there taking a philosophy course. Um, and uh, at, his, at his advice, I, I did end up taking some philosophy courses. And, um, you know, sort of long story short, uh, people told me that I was, I was relatively good at it. And at sort of each stage of, of my education, I found it to be uh, enjoyable and rewarding. And I just sort of persisted. And, and uh, at a certain point, you know, it became um, a professional commitment of mine. Um, but, you know, looking back at it, I think, you know, it certainly is a career choice that fits my own temperament. I think I'm a little bit, a little bit restless and unsatisfied. I think that's a good, um, um, a good trait for philosophers to have to some degree. Uh, and I'm interested in other disciplines, but I think one thing I've noticed is it's really hard for me to imagine, um, you know, investigating other disciplines with the depth that, you know, I've come to investigate philosophy. I mean, I like history, for example, but the idea of, I don't know, you know, poking around in an archive for weeks and weeks doesn't excite me. You know, psychology is interesting, but I'm not too enthused about, you know, working in a laboratory and setting up experiments. So, you know, I think one thing I've always liked about philosophy is, uh, you know, it can be done pretty much anywhere, anytime with anyone. And so, you know, we're, we're the lowest equipment discipline, you know, um, lo lowest capital. Um, That's right. So, uh, but in any case, as I said, uh, you know, uh, I came out of a family where that was probably not the thing that um, that people might expect you to do, but it's it's certainly I think proven uh, rewarding to me. And you know, in terms of the book that we're going to be discussing, as you said, uh, a lot of my professional uh, research has addressed questions related to to human mortality. Um, before um, this work on grief, uh, I had published a, a reasonable amount on ethical issues related to suicide and assisted dying, and I'm going to be continuing to work on that in the future. But, you know, I've also thought about some other issues related to, to death and dying, uh, mm -hmm. the desirability of immortality, uh, whether we should fear death. So this work on grief is, to some extent, um, a kind of natural extension of some of the work that I've done in the past. Well, that's fabulous. You know, um, it's always interesting. <laughs> I find it at least always interesting to hear um, philosophers um, describe what they were doing before they knew that philosophy was a thing. Um, and so the, the sports writing thing is, a, is, is, is very intriguing to me. Um, but, um, uh, 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 you know, uh, when I was growing up, my dad owned a, um, uh, a, a sporting goods shop. 
uh, in the little town in Jersey that we grew up in. And um, uh, I'm not sure what the ultimate uh, explanatory <laughs> lens is for this, but I don't know anything <laughs> about sports. <laughs> but maybe that's something for a psychologist to work out with me. But, you know a um, lot about the equipment, but nothing about the game. Uh, I don't even know about the equipment, to be honest with you. <laughs> yeah, my dad was an accountant who opened a, sports, a sporting goods store. Uh, yeah. And um, <laughs> I also don't know anything about money. So, you know, uh, I don't yeah. <laughs> Um, it's all lost on begin. you. Okay. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Um, so, um, so let's begin where where um, where you were just um, where you just ended. Now, I'm I'm sure uh, some of our listeners are, will be familiar with uh, the work that you've done on suicide. Um, and I guess I can imagine you know a couple of different ways in which one might move from that topic um, uh, to grief. That one might move maybe even from end of life sort of moral issues at the end of life to uh, the topic of grief. Um, but maybe, you know, a good place to start talking about the book is maybe, could you tell us, you know, how you got interested in grief? Uh, I mean, again, just to emphasize, we're talking about grief now as the philosophical topic of grief, not um, uh, the, the the phenomenon or the, the syndrome of grief. <laughs> sure. Well, when people ask me about my interest in the topic, I, I expect that they want me to... Uh, say that I've had a particularly hard go of it with respect to grief in my life. And, and that's really not true. Uh, you know, I think I've had, uh, for a person my age, about the, the average amount that one would have, uh, you know, deaths of, of, you know, grandparents, my own father, uh, about 10 years or so ago. But it doesn't really emerge, or my interest doesn't really emerge from anything biographical as such. Uh, I think it sort of has two sources. One of them is um, teaching. So I have uh, taught philosophy of death and dying for a large portion of my career. And one of the things that you notice is that a lot of the work that philosophers have done on, on, on death and dying is in a way kind of egocentric, right? They're uh, concerned with questions like, should I fear my death? And would my death be bad for me? Or, uh, you know, might it be rational for me to, to engage in suicidal conduct at some point? And all of those are our first personal questions, right? Asking us about our own deaths. And those are perfectly legitimate and important questions and questions that, you know, I've, I've thought about myself. But I began to notice in my teaching of philosophy of death and dying that my students tended to relate to the phenomenon of their own mortality, first by reference to other people's mortality, right? They would tell stories about, uh, you know, how they uh, processed or, or engaged with their own grief at the death of, of a loved one or, or the death of a pet, right? That's very often people's first experience with grief is, is the death of, of a childhood pet. So I began to wonder whether it might be um, pedagogically prudent for me to be able to engage with them right around what seems to be on their minds, which, which is grief. Um, and uh, what I did is, you know, I began to look for what philosophers had said about grief. And what I was most struck by is how little they had said. Uh, when you look at the history of, of sort of Western uh, philosophy, as we say, sort of the European, North American uh, traditions, uh, grief has not been a very prominent topic of discussion. Uh, if we go back in time, you know, you see a couple of comments from a philosopher like Wittgenstein, and of course, of interest to, to a philosopher like Kierkegaard. Uh, Montaigne has some essays in which he engages the subject. Uh, Augustine, uh, with his characteristic uh, sort of emotional vividness, talks about his own grieving. 
the one period when it seemed as if grieving was an important topic for philosophers was um, uh, during the period of, of, of Roman philosophy. The Epicureans and, and Stoics uh, wrote a number of uh, documents, consolatory letters, as they call them, uh, to people who were grieving that, that contain, I guess, sort of philosophical wisdom about, about grief and bereavement. So in some sense, you know, my interest came out of, again, that, that observation that my students were, were interested in, in grief, um, and by and large, philosophers hadn't been. Uh, and so I saw, I suppose, a professional and, and uh, pedagogical opportunity uh, in thinking more deeply about grief. And as I began to see what philosophers had said about it, little of it that there was, uh, I saw that there were a lot of, of really critical uh, philosophical questions here that really hadn't been addressed. I suppose the other source of it is is a matter of my own philosophical interest or temperament. Uh, I mentioned the, the Stoic and Epicurean, Epicurean schools a moment ago, and I think one of the things that um, distinguishes you know those traditions maybe from from academic philosophy as it's practiced nowadays is that those figures really did see themselves as doing something kind of therapeutic, right? They thought right. that philosophers should uh, be out in the world helping people deal with, with, you know, the challenges that life faces. And in particular, I guess my own temperament is that philosophers should spend more time thinking about adversity, right? And thinking about the challenges that human life presents. You know, uh, there's a whole um, you know, literature and philosophy about well-being, you know, about sort of what makes life go well. And I guess uh, I kind of follow Shelley Kagan in thinking that we also need good theories of ill-being, Right. right, ways of accounting for what's what's challenging or difficult in human life, and maybe some guidance from philosophers as to uh, you know what philosophy can provide people in terms of helping them deal with the sort of the most uh, uh, challenging or adverse episodes in our existence, and that in some sense draws um, a through line uh, from my interest in grief back, as you were saying, to my interest in suicide. Right, obviously suicide is. Uh, a response to, to turmoil, to strife, to suffering in human life. And so, um, you know, I, I guess if, if I were to be able to sort of coin my own term, right, for my, my current area of, of research specialization, kind of philosophy of, of adversity, right? How should we think about, you know, the, the most um, psychologically uh, trying elements of, of human life? Right. You know, it, as you were just talking, it struck me that it it is um... – it's it's interesting, curious maybe is the right word, um, that there's been relatively little attention paid to the philosophical analyses of um, sort of uh, uh, episodes of adversity, given that, um, you know, a lot of good life theories, even if they're not explicitly good, you know, committed to this sort of challenge idea, right? The idea that what part of what makes a life go well is the way that challenges are confronted, surmounted, dealt with, mitigated, mm -hmm. right? You know, that's that's part of the account of, uh, even if only implicitly, part of the account of the good life according to a lot of good life theories, sometimes very explicitly so. And so you would think that given that that's an element of good life theories, uh, or many of them at least, that um, there would be more work of the kind uh, that, 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 that you're doing here. Um, so that's puzzling. Um, but, uh, you know, um, can you say a little bit, though, before we get into the, um, uh, the, 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 the account of the book, can you tell us a little bit, just so that leaders, uh, our, our listeners uh, uh, are clear, that this is not a book, um, uh, even though it, it is about grief 
And it is a, even touches on the idea of grief as a kind of um, therapeutic uh, um, uh, process. Um, mm-hmm. This itself is not a book for grievers. Is that right? I don't think it's best read by those who are in the <laughs> midst of grief in the sense that I don't think of it as a uh, – it's not, if you will, sort of a step-by-step philosophical guide to grieving, right? Uh, right. It's not an attempt to – lead a, a, the reader through the process of grief. I think it's a book that uh, people can profit from first in anticipation of grieving, right? To perhaps understand better uh, what's to come, but also retrospectively, right? To understand the grief experiences that, that we have undergone. Um, and I think that what philosophers can do with respect to that therapeutic enterprise that, that you were mentioning is you know, to do our best to to try to discern, divine the truth about you know these these adverse life experiences and what their significance is. Um, I think you're right that you know it is surprising how little philosophers have had to say about sort of central life challenges. Though I do think that's changing, and I I see my own work on grief as actually continuous with um, the sort of burgeoning interest in phenomena such as depression and anxiety, right, which are areas that philosophers have written a lot on in say, the past decade or so. So, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm pitching this book not as a guide to sort of the process of grieving or how you get from point A to point B to point C in grieving. In fact, I don't really think that, um, you know, a philosopher and maybe even anyone is, re- is in a position to give anybody a step-by-step guide. In some sense, kind of part of my view of the nature of grief that we uh, sort of improvise our way through it. Um, right. And so the thought that you could uh, give people a kind of a recipe or a template or something like that for um, how their grief will go or how it should go. I think that's probably uh, an unlikely proposition. Right, right, right. Good. So why don't we pick up there? Um, so uh, the book is a philosophical guide, uh, as you call it. Um, and so the analysis begins, uh, I think, you know, naturally and usefully, I should add, Um with an account of what you call the sort of the scope of grief, you know, for whom, you know, for, 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 you know, for what, for whom do we grieve? Um, Mm -hmm. So you hold that grief is triggered by the loss of someone in whom we've invested something of ourselves. Uh, You you draw on some familiar uh, views in ethics about practical identities. Could you explain Mm -hmm. uh, that view of the scope of grief? Mm -hmm. I'll certainly do my best. I think the first thing to notice is that we do not grieve everyone's death, right? And I I don't mean that that, uh, uh, everyone's death is not grieved, but rather that each of us only grieves some deaths. Uh, In the course of our conversation today, uh, there will be, you know, tens of thousands of of deaths that occur, and uh, neither you nor I will, will grieve those. Uh, hopefully someone will. <laughs> but um, we as individuals grieve selectively. We don't grieve all deaths. And that suggests that we need some account of uh, the scope of grief, right? Who is it that I can grieve? Who is it that you can grieve? And so forth. And the answer seems to uh, draw our attention to the thought that we only grieve those that we stand in a certain sort of relationship with. Right. There needs to be a certain sort of relationship between us and the uh, deceased individual such that it uh, makes sense for us to grieve their deaths. 
And what I uh, argue for in the early chapters of, of this book is that we grieve those in whom we have invested our practical identities. And I should say that I'm borrowing that notion from the uh, Harvard philosopher Christine Korsgaard, who I think introduced it into the philosophical literature in the 1990s. But what I mean uh, by a practical identity is something like that set of concerns and commitments and projects that we have that lead us to sort of care about living, about uh, care about wanting our lives to continue, and that give us uh, many of our reasons for doing what we do day to day. We uh, are individuals, right, that have uh, different kinds of concerns and commitments and different of our concerns, commitments, projects, our practical identities, if you will, depend upon other people. So a part of a person's practical identity uh, will often include, say, their romantic relationships or partnerships. That's a an element of their practical identity that implicates other people, right? It's kind of nonsensical for you to think of yourself, you know, as a spouse or a romantic partner, uh, unless you have another person <laughs> who is your right. spouse or your romantic partner. Uh, likewise, you know, we think of ourselves as, as children of specific parents or uh, sisters or brothers of particular people or parents of particular children or you know, colleagues of, of particular people. And so a lot of the elements, in fact, I think almost all of the elements of our practical identities implicate other people. They presuppose the existence of other people. Some of these um, relationships in which we have invested our practical identities will be relationships that involve things like love or attachment, right? So again, romantic relationships or parental relationships, filial relationships. These are the kinds of relationships that are often characterized by love and attachment. And it's not surprising then, uh, given my view, that those are the sorts of relationships uh, that um, will lead us to grieve when the other individual dies, right? We grieve the deaths of um, our spouses, our loved ones, uh, you know, close friends, close relatives, and so forth. But it's also, I think, an important kind of wrinkle in my view that we also grieve other people with whom we don't share that level of love or attachment or intimacy or familiarity. One of the things I think that the uh, cultural social media has made very, very clear in recent years is that people really do grieve in a genuine way the deaths of, say, you know, pop music stars. I mean, I thought that when uh, David Bowie died several years back, it was really quite profound, right, how much grief you could see out there on social media uh, at this individual's death. So we grieve, you know, celebrities, we grieve political leaders, you know, think about someone like Nelson Mandela, right? I think his, his death prompted a kind of global grief event. Um, and those individuals are individuals in whom we've invested our practical identities, but not necessarily in that same sort of, uh, again, loving or attached way. Those are individuals who perhaps serve as role models for us, or perhaps are um, people who inspire us in particular sorts of ways. So what I want to argue is that we invest our practical identities in other people. We have relations with them in which our practical identities are invested. And just as there's a wide array, wide array of, of uh, different kinds of relationships in which we invest our practical identities, there are a wide array of different sorts of grief. So, of course, you're going to grieve the death of, again, someone like Nelson Mandela or David Bowie differently from the grief uh, that you would feel at the death of, of your sister or, uh, you know, a long-term friend. So um, 
I also think that my position, you know, makes sense of certain kinds of grief that um, maybe fly under the radar. So one, I think, particularly poignant sort of grief is the grief that um, that would-be parents feel at the deaths of miscarried miscarried children, right? right. Um, you know, you think about uh, the hopes and aspirations and dreams that parents uh, have for the children that they expect to bear, and uh, you know, when when the child is miscarried, uh, that's a kind of uh, a dent, I guess I would say, in their practical identities, right? Sort of their their aspirations and, and goals for the world, uh, you know, can't quite continue in the same way, and so so their grief is understandable. But that's the heart of, of what I want to say about the scope of grief, that we grieve those in whom we've invested our practical identities. Right. And um, it, it also, on your account, um, you know, makes it possible to make sense of, you know, what people seem to describe as grief at the loss of a pet, right? Sure. Sure. <laughs> but I think we <laughs> right, certainly so it doesn't can. Have to just be, yeah, it doesn't have to just be persons, in other words. Yeah, I mean, I think it can be it can be actual persons. It can be, you know, in the case of the miscarriage, it's sort of possible persons in a way, right? Right, right, right. Uh, you know, right. Uh, but certainly, but certainly pets. And you know, I'm also happy to acknowledge that, you know, the grief that I'm interested in in my book, which is the grief that's prompted by the deaths of others, is in some ways, uh, you know, on a continuum maybe with other kinds of losses that we suffer. You know, you think about um, uh, the kind of emotional flavor or palette of of divorce. Or um, you know, having one's children move out of the house, you know, that kind of thing. Those are, are losses of, of a different sort. Uh, but I think that that the account that I give of grief helps us see how there are nevertheless some some similarities, right, between the emotional textures of those experiences and the grief that we feel when others die. Right, right, great, great. So let's, um, you know, the next topic. Then, of course, so we figured out. You know, we've gotten an account of you know the the, the range of targets of our of our grief. Um, uh, now for grief's nature. Um, so you argue that um, grief is um, a complex of affective states. Uh, uh, you deny that um, grief is um, uh, uh, a progression of distinct states that always follow some particular uh, trajectory. Um, you argue that um, it's a set of affective states that um, focus uh, a certain kind of attention, uh, mm-hmm. and you also hold that grief is an activity. Um, can you sort of fit those puzzle pieces together? Let me try. So you yeah. mentioned earlier, Bob, the, um, the famous five-stage model of grief, right? And most right. people, if they know anything about you know sort of scholarly work on grief, that's what they know. Um, and that, of course, was developed by uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who was a uh, you know nursing educator, right, in the 1960s, 1970s. And what the five-stage model says is that uh, you know grief proceeds through these five stages: uh, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And it's interesting to note, you know, in retrospect, that uh, Kubler-Ross really didn't even develop her model for the grief that we feel at other people's death. It was actually developed. Um, Try to make sense of the grief that people feel at their own pending death. But in any right, case, right. It, was, it was then sort of repurposed, right, to, to think about this other sort of, of grieving. Now, I think subsequent empirical research by psychologists has shown that, you know, this sort of five-stage model is, is just not very credible sort of as a general description of people's grieving. Most of us, you know, don't go through those five stages or we go through other stages on top of that or we go through them in a different order and so forth. So, so the details of the five-stage model probably are, are not true to most people's grieving experience. But what I think the five-stage model does get right 
is that grief um, typically includes, right, multiple different kinds of affective states, uh, multiple different emotions. I suppose the heart of it for most of us is a kind of feeling of sorrow or sadness, but people will also experience, in addition to this, uh, feelings such as you know, guilt, um, anxiety, confusion, occasionally resentment, uh, but also sometimes you know, positive emotions, joyfulness, and things like this. I think one of the challenges that this presents to us uh, as philosophers is how do we sort of make all of those different emotional states hang together, right? Why should we think of all of these different emotions as part of the same kind of episode as opposed to just, you know, a number of different emotions that, that someone's death happens to prompt that, uh, that, that aren't really related to it, one another in any meaningful way. So part of my solution to that is to say that, well, grief doesn't look like an emotion. It looks more like a sort of state of heightened emotional attention. I think this resonates pretty closely with most people's experience of grieving, right? That in the course of grieving, what we're doing is we're uh, in a state where this other person and their death and our relationship with them are sort of front and center, foregrounded in our own emotional consciousness or awareness for a while. This means that um, those phenomena or those facts uh, if you will, sort of uh, push other kinds of emotional phenomena, you know, more to the margins, right? Push them off to the periphery of our emotional attention, right? Um, and so I think of grief as a kind of emotionally driven attention, and the different aspects of uh, our grief experiences are directed at different aspects of our relationship with the deceased. So when we feel sorrow, we're, we're attending, if you will, to a certain feature of of uh, our relationship with that deceased person, that their loss stings. When we feel guilt, uh, we're attending to perhaps certain um, choices or actions we made that uh, perhaps don't live up to our own standards for how we wanted to treat that person. So I think of grief as a kind of heightened state of emotional attention. And, uh, you know, grief begins then when this state of attention begins, and it roughly ends when this state of attention subsides. Uh, and I should say that I'm, I'm very much um, borrowing upon some, some recent philosophical work um, by philosophers such as Sebastian Watzel, who've developed this idea that, you know, uh, attention, right, is an important feature of our psychology, and emotional attention in particular um, is an important and interesting feature of our psychology. So that's what I want to say about grief as a kind of attention. The other thing you mentioned was the notion that grief is a kind of activity. So, you know, you mentioned in, in the intro to, to the conversation today, you know, sort of picture that we may have of grief where uh, grief is just this, you know, bad condition. <laughs> it's just this right, unfortunate right. condition. And you just have to put up with it, right? You know, at best it can be endured. Um, but I think it's important to note that while there is this, this term grief, which is a noun, <laughs> there's also this term grieve, which is a verb, right? Um, and I guess in my mind, it's helpful to think of grief as, as a verb, right? Something that we do. Uh, we don't just sort of undergo it passively. Uh, we also engage with it, right? I mean, of course, some people, you know, engage with it by, for example, you know, getting getting help, right? You know, they, they go to you know, mental health professionals or, or uh, you know, uh, religious leaders or, or friends or family or whomever it might be to sort of try to get a handle on their grieving experience, right? And that's, of course, to choose and to act, to try to sort of make sense of your grief experience. Uh, but I think we choose an act in the course of grieving. So it's not an entirely, uh, you know, sort of passive condition that we just sort of endure. We shape it, right? We engage with it. We try to, to, to work with it, try to make sense of it. Some have said that grief is a kind of condition of, of questioning, right? We're trying to sort of make sense of what's happening to us as it's happening to us. Right. So a sort of interesting example, I think, to kind of illustrate what I have in mind. 
seems like one crucial choice that that grieving people often have to make. For example, uh, you know, uh, grieving spouses is what do you do with with the beloved person's belongings? Right? They might be in your house. You know, their their clothing, their their belongings. That's a you know a, a poignant decision, right? Uh, for many people, it's sort of fraught with a certain kind of significance. But what I want to underscore about that is that this is an instance of people shaping their own grief experience, right? Sort of deciding that their grief is at a certain condition, deciding that they're prepared, right? Ready, perhaps, to, to live uh, in an environment where that, that, that loved one's belongings are not there uh, um, in the way they were before. And so that's an instance, I think, of the ways in which grief is something that we do, right? It's not just something that we undergo. And a couple of points in the book, I kind of compare our relationship to grief to uh, a musician's relationship to a musical score, right? Particularly like maybe a jazz musician, right? Uh, you know, you're given these notes, right? These are sort of the givens of, of your, your experience. Um, but, you know, you could lend those notes color and tone. You can, you know, change the, the rhythm. You can change the tempo. Um, and I think that's very much what we do with grieving, right? We're not in control, right, of grief in the sense that we can decide how it goes, right? We can't just sort of say, this is what my grief is going to be like by, by God, um, but um, we nevertheless can respond to it, right? And we can engage with it in an active, agential sort of way. And, and for me, this is important because I think it, it pushes back against, against, again, this thought that grief is just this sort of condition of anguish that, you know, we have no uh, uh, choice to, uh, but to sort of endure, right? To just sort of, uh, you know, survive it. Um, I think there's something that we can do with, with grief beyond just, uh, you know, waiting for it to happen and waiting for it to pass. Right. Good. You know, without getting too far ahead, because, uh, you know, this is a, a theme that, that comes up in a couple of different places in, in your analysis, but um, uh, it, it, it might not be so bad uh, at this point to say so. That it's, a, it's an activity that has a kind of self-knowledge or reconstituted self-knowledge mm-hmm. as its aim. Is that right? Well, I think... Um... I guess what I would say is, is it has uh, the reconstitution of, of self-knowledge or the acquisition of a kind of self-knowledge, not as its aim in the sense that, you know, one couldn't be grieving right, unless right. you had that aim, but rather right. that sort of, uh, you know, we think of certain kinds of, of activities as having, having a point, you know, having a sort of rationale. Right, right. Um, and right. the question I think about, about grief is, you know, what's its point? What's its rationale? And, and we'll, we can talk about this more later, as, as you mentioned, but I think for me, um, the, the point, the rationale is that, that grief can provide us a certain kind of understanding of ourselves that's a kind of reconstruction of the self that we, we once had, right, when we stood right. in this relationship with a living person. But now we have to sort of rebuild it because that relationship uh, cannot survive in the same terms, given that the person is, is now dead. Right. All right. Good, good, good. Um Let's talk about the um, what you call the paradox of grief. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what's the paradox, uh, and and how do you address it? Sure. So, I should say for the professional philosophers in the audience, it's not a paradox strictly speaking. It's merely right. sort of tension. <laughs> um, but you know, paradox paradox is a cool sounding word. So, uh, <laughs> I use that word. Um, but the paradox basically arises from from two observations. So, on the one hand, grief feels pretty bad. Right. It involves a whole bunch of affective states that in ordinary life, you know, we tend not to welcome. We, we actually you know, try to avoid. So, you know, it involves 
sorrow and sadness and, and you know, as I was mentioning earlier, other kinds of, uh, as they say, negative emotions, you know, uh, guilt, anxiety, uh, worry, uh, puzzlement, uh, anger sometimes. So all of these are emotions that in day-to-day life, you know, we, we don't welcome. Um, it feels bad. It's often emotionally taxing or stressful. Um, the parapsychologists, uh, starting in the 1960s, developed a, a kind of scale of life stressors. And the approach that, that these psychologists, Holmes and Rahe, used was to sort of measure, uh, you know, the stresses of different kinds of life events. And they, they essentially decided that they were just going to you know, index the most stressful event to 100, just sort of, you know, as a kind of you know, right. uh, index. <laughs> and uh, what they found is that the death of one's, one's spouse is the most stressful event for people that they undergo in their lives. They, that, that's a 100. And every other event actually falls well short of that, somewhere in the 70s. Sure. So, uh, you know, grief is, grief is tough, right? It's, it's a very difficult sort of experience uh, to undergo. And, of course, this isn't to say that most people don't, uh, you know, manage to, to – um, uh, move out of grief and, and return to, to good, happy lives, but, but it's difficult. So that's the first observation. The other observation is that at the same time that uh, grief is very uh, taxing and emotionally arduous, there seems to be something about it that's healthy. We wouldn't think that a person who uh, you know, manages to suppress all of the grief in their life is making a prudent choice. Uh, we wouldn't think that this is a uh, happy uh, event or happy um, situation for them to be in, that they've sort of undergone a stroke of good luck that they don't grieve. Um, the figure I like to come back to in talking about the paradox of grief is uh, the protagonist of Camus' novella, The Stranger, uh, Merceau, who, who doesn't grieve, right? Or, or he grieves at a very low level at the death of his mother. And I think when we read uh, this tale, uh, we're struck by many things in, in The Stranger, but one of the things that strikes me is that, you know, we don't think of this as someone who uh, has had the good fortune not to grieve. We think of this as a kind of deficiency, a kind of lack in his life. Right. So grief seems on the one hand to feel really bad, but it's also deeply human, something that we need to do, not something that we should try to suppress at all costs, uh, despite the fact that it's arduous and painful. So that then raises the question, you know, can this can this paradox be resolved or at least softened a bit, you know, that grief both feels bad, but maybe there's something good about it. And um, my resolution sort of proceeds in two stages. So first, I argue that I think there is something good about grief, that it is an opportunity for a certain species of self-knowledge or self-understanding. By grieving, we are uh, sometimes positioned to reassess and rebuild our practical identities. We discover uh, or identify new sets of concerns and commitments uh, that we didn't have before, uh, concerns and commitments that, if you will, are the successors to the concerns and commitments that we had when a person uh, that mattered to us was alive. So, you know, to take uh, the kind of example that I've been working with, you know, when one spouse dies, uh, certain kinds of concerns and projects no longer make sense anymore, right? Your, your, right. your, you know, your, your, your morning coffee doesn't make sense, uh, you know, with your spouse doesn't make sense anymore. You have to figure out new concerns and commitments to serve as the successors to, um, to the ones that made that yeah, your spouse made sense of for you. Right. So I think that grief is an opportunity for a certain kind of uh, change of the self that is healthy, not in the in so much as we should think that you know it's a good thing that our that people who matter to us die, but they do die, and uh, that's an unfortunate fact. But grief is a tool, a kind of emotional tool, to renew our sense of what we find good and valuable in our lives, and the sense to kind of rebuild our practical identities. 
So that's the first stage. And then the second stage is, you know, to sort of rethink, right, how we think about the pain of grief, right, the psychological pain of grief. So if I if my first step is correct, if the first stage is right, then the pain of grief turns out to be a, a desirable kind of pain, right, a kind of pain that it kind of makes sense for us to seek out because it's embedded within this pursuit, right, of self-knowledge or self-understanding. An example that I think is, is sort of helpful uh, in this connection is to think about the decision that some women make not to uh, receive uh, um, you know, medication during childbirth, you know, anesthetic medication, pain-relieving medication. And you know, when I read about that decision, a lot of what women say is that they want to be fully present for that experience, including the pain, because the pain is essential to the experience. Right. It really wouldn't right. be, you know, childbirth, <laughs> right, if there weren't this sort of strain put on the body. Likewise, I would say it really wouldn't be grief in most cases unless there was the strain put on our psyches. And so in a sense, even though the pains of grief turn out to be painful, I'm not trying to deny that they are psychologically painful. I think they turn out to be, uh, in many cases, good pains, pains that we in certain ways seek out because we tacitly understand that we're seeking some larger good, this kind of good of self-knowledge. Great, great, great. Um, now, th- the next natural question then is the rationality <laughs> uh, uh, of grief. Um, and here you position yourself um, in between uh, what I suppose uh, from the outside of this discourse are two uh, common views, one being that um, uh, the set of responses that we would associate or would call grieving um, are neither rational nor irrational, they're irrational, mm-hmm. um, on the one hand. And then on the other, uh, the view that uh, grieving is um, uh, necessarily irrational. Um, mm-hmm. I guess the Stoics sort of had, a, <laughs> at least some Stoics had the kind of view that yeah. grieving is a kind yeah. of irrational thing because it's a it's an example of mistaking what's in your control and what's not in your control or something like right. that. Um, uh, but you want to maintain that... Um, uh, uh, it's neither irrational nor necessarily irrational. So that there's such a thing as rational grief. Uh, can you tell us why? Sure. I, I think just to begin, you know, it might be helpful to to non-philosophers who are listening sort of appreciate, you know, what kind of what's at stake here. Uh, you know, you read grief memoirs, right? Um, one of the things you notice in many uh, memoirs that people have written about grief is many people do sort of feel a sense of themselves kind of coming apart, right? Sort of, you know, losing right. their losing their sense of, uh, of of what is ordinary and typical in their lives. This, I'm not suggesting that you know grief makes people, you know, sort of uh, delusional or, or psychotic or anything like that. But you know, you read a, a grief memoir like uh, you know Joan Didion's grief memoir, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the the year of magical thinking. You know, there's certainly moments where you kind of worry for the author. You know, she seems to be sort of uh, feeling like she's kind of being split in two or split into many parts. So I think that, you know, raises for us this question of, well, you know, should we, should we think of ourselves as, as um, undergoing a process that is, or at least could be rational when we're grieving? And, and as you say, my position is, is yes, we should think of this as open to rational appraisal. There uh, can be rational grief episodes. There can be uh, less rational grief episodes. Now, admittedly, this is a more complicated case, I think, than other kinds of emotions, right? When we think about the rationality of, of emotions. So, uh, you know, fear, I suppose, is the simplest emotion to think about in terms of rationality, right? Sometimes people have fears of things that, um, 
you know, either aren't really dangerous to them or, you know, their fear of, uh, of those things is greatly exaggerated relative to how dangerous or risky they are, right? And of course, right. you know, when, when people have those things, we call them phobias, right? That's sort of right. you know, pathological fear. Um, now, grief, as we've, we've been saying, is, is a much more complicated emotional condition, right? It's got all these different, uh, different affective states in it, sorrow and, and uh, you know, puzzlement and, and anxiety and so forth. So that makes it a little harder maybe to see how to evaluate, right, the rationality of grief episodes. Um, but again, you know, I want to say that, that grief is a response to an ethically significant fact about ourselves and about the world that, that we share with others. Um, it should, uh, you know, barring a good argument to the contrary, be the kind of thing whose rationality we can, we can think about and conceptualize. And what I end up saying is, I think, very Aristotelian in spirit. What I end up saying is that, um, you know, an episode of grief is rational to the extent that it's quantitatively rational. That is to say, you're grieving uh, enough, right? Sort of neither nor more, no more than uh, the uh, death of the person in question sort of merits, but also no less, right? It seems possible for mm -hmm. us to not grieve enough. Uh, it's also possible to grieve too much. And also, uh, you know, whether the particular elements of the grieving experience are, if you will, big enough, right? Perhaps, you know, you are... Um, uh, undergoing a grief experience where you feel a lot of guilt, but maybe you should only feel a smidgen of guilt <laughs> in connection right, with right. this person who who died. Um, so there's the quantitative dimension to it, right? The sort of the magnitude of the grief experience, I think, can be appraised in terms of whether it's rational or irrational. Is it, is it sort of the right size? The other aspect of it, as, as you might expect then, is that grief should also be qualitatively rational. So you should feel the right emotions, right? right. Uh, and and by the right emotions, I sort of meet all and only the emotions that it would be rational for a person to undergo in light of the relationship in question. So, uh, you know, again, you know, guilt is, I think, a nice example because, you know, it's a common emotion that people feel in the course of grieving. And sometimes we might ask, you know, does it really, is it really rational for the person to feel guilt about, you know, some, some choice they made vis-a-vis -vis the deceased, you know, 20 years ago or 30 years ago or something like that? Um, or, you know, anger or resentment, right? Is our anger or resentment toward uh, a deceased loved one, in fact, rational, right? Did they really, uh, you know, wrong us or injure us in the way that we suppose? So I think when you put the, the quantitative and the qualitative dimensions together, I think you get a pretty you know, rich uh, kind of tapestry of the ways in which uh, a grief experience can can uh, sort of go wrong, but also go right uh, from the standpoint right. of our rationality. And, and my hope is that this, um, you know, gives us at least a kind of very, very rough metric for, for asking ourselves uh, about whether our own grief experiences are rational. As I say, it does seem to be a kind of uh, concern, right, that arises for some people in the course of grieving, whether they're uh, sort of keeping their rational bearings. Right, right. Let me ask, so um, uh, this, this this part of the book, this, where you discuss uh, um, the rational appraisal of grief, of grief episodes, got me thinking um, uh, about the duration, so the, the, <laughs> not only the magnitude in the sense of the, uh, the sort of depth of uh, <laughs> of the yeah. feelings, but the duration, um, you know, maybe this is a cultural thing. You know, uh, I remember an episode of, from my childhood where my, uh, my Syrian grandmother, um, was insisting that somebody in the family was grieving too long for the loss of somebody. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, so that, uh, your book sort of reminded me, uh, 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 of that sort of, 
uh, moment uh, in my childhood. Um, do you have any thoughts about that? I, I don't remember that coming up in the book about the about how long uh, uh, one grieves is something that mm-hmm. could be that might turn a rational grief episode uh, yeah. uh, might, might might sully its rationality if it goes on for too long. Well, I suppose it relates um, back to the first dimension, right, of the rational praiseability right. of grief, the quantity, right, how much you're grieving, you know, duration is, is a quantity, you know, time. Right. Um, uh, and it's interesting to note, right, that, that you know, cultures are often uh, somewhat prescriptive right, about the duration of grieving, <laughs> right? So, yeah. you know, uh, I think many people will know, you know, that, you know, Victorian culture in the U.S. and, and in Britain sort of mandated, you know, that widows were to grieve for a year, you know, wearing black and yep. so on. Um, and I think there's some value, you know, in, in cultures being a little bit prescriptive in the sense that I think, you know, those those kinds of prescriptions or those kinds of social expectations are um, also kind of cues to people to grieve. Right? Yeah. <laughs> They're sort of ways right. of setting people up to grieve, you know, and, and, you know, I think funerals and other kinds of events like that are, are kind of part of uh the set of rituals that we use to, to, if you will, sort of ready ourselves for grieving. Um, but I would say that, you know, the duration of grief is a quantitative feature of it. And so certainly we should be able to say uh, in a very rough schematic way, whether someone's grieving has lasted too long or, or has lasted not as long as it should. Um, there's some interesting psychological research and, and the philosopher uh, Dan Moeller, who's also written on grief, makes much of this, that points out that people's expectation for how long they're likely to grieve um, uh, often exceeds, right, how long they, they actually grieve, right? You know, we expect right, to grieve right. for, for, you know, years and years. And in fact, you know, most people are, are more or less back to normal, you know, in many, in most cases, uh, you know, in, in six months or so. Um, right. But I would also add, you know, that it's, it, it may be useful here to invoke a distinction that is is fairly common in sort of mental health circles, kind of between grief and bereavement, right? right. You know, bereavement being this kind of uh, sort of immediate, you know, response to a person's death, the sort of the most emotionally uh, high-pitched right, set of responses that we have to uh, to the death of another. And, you know, I think bereavement, you know, it certainly seems to, to be reasonable to ask, you know, whether someone's bereavement has gone on long enough or, or not too long. I think grief is a little bit trickier because sometimes grief goes goes much longer than bereavement. And sometimes, you know, it kind of comes back again. You know, people sometimes yeah. report that, you know, a certain episode of their life uh, leads them to, to feel emotions that they think of as grief. Uh, you know, there's the famous uh, uh, observation that, you know, smells and other kinds of very specific sensory data, you know, seem to sometimes um, uh, reopen, right, grief for people well after they might have expected it to sort of have been fully concluded. Right, right. Interesting. Um, So, um, you know, uh, I suppose uh, listeners, um, at least the philosophers, will be familiar with that Robert Solomon essay about the duty to grieve. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of us teach it. uh, so, uh, you take on the issue about, um, whether there's a duty to grieve and if so, to whom it's owed. Um, and you know, you hold that, uh, this is a, a, a kind of self-regarding duty. Uh, can you tell mm-hmm. us about that? Sure. So I do think that most of us have the sense that there's something morally deficient right, about, about not grieving, uh, or, or trying to sort of, uh, you know, suppress or minimize one's grief to the utmost. Uh, 
I think the question that raises is, well, what's, what's morally troubling about that? Uh, the paper that you mentioned by Robert Solomon on grief and gratitude, I think, raises the issue, but I don't think, uh, to my eyes at least, satisfactorily uh, resolves it. Right. I think crucial to my own um, approach to this has been to distinguish between, on the one hand, grief, and on the other, mourning. So the way I think about grief is it's primarily a kind of psychological phenomenon. So grief is my engagement with the death of someone in whom my practical identity was invested and my engagement with the relationship that I had and will have with that person. So grief is, is if you will, a kind of individual phenomenon. We can, of course, do it with other people, right? I can be grieving a death and you can be grieving a death and we can do that together, so to speak. Um, but this contrasts then grief with mourning. Well, I think of mourning as uh, behavioral, right? Sort of the things that we do predominantly, though not exclusively, in the course of uh, performing rituals um, that uh, are often tied to grieving, right? Many people who are mourning are also grieving, though not everybody who's mourning is grieving. Uh, I sort of jokingly point out in the book that, you know, you can pay someone, someone to mourn, right? right. Uh, that, was, that was not uncommon, you know, in medieval times, you know, to, to make a big show of your own death by paying people to mourn. But I don't think you can pay them to grieve, right? You can't sort of pay them to care. <laughs> you, can't, right. can't, right. you know, can't sort of pay them to, to have this kind of role, relationship with you. So what I want to say is that I do think there probably are, right, duties to the deceased to mourn their deaths and maybe duties to other people to mourn deaths, right? So, you know, when we, when we mourn the deceased, perhaps we are giving them a kind of recognition or their deaths a kind of recognition that they're entitled to. Uh, when we mourn the deceased, we are probably uh, fulfilling duties that we have to, to other living people, to, to comfort them, to console them, to create community or, or uh, solidarity with them. But I want to deny that there's a duty to others, right, to grieve. I think that if there is a duty here, it's a duty to ourselves. And this brings mm -hmm. us back to what we were uh, discussing a moment ago about the way in which uh, grief is a kind of opportunity for a special sort of, of ethical self-knowledge. So uh, I contend that there is, in fact, a kind of duty of self-knowledge, a duty to, to know ourselves, to know our own uh, practical identities, our concerns, commitments, and so forth. I don't say a lot in the book to defend the idea that there's a duty of self-knowledge, but I, I gesture in the direction of the idea that when we know ourselves well, this is a way for us to live more authentically, sort of more truly. And also in the case of grief, I think um, it's a uh, opportunity to, to come to live in, in light of the reality that another person has died, to not sort of have our, our practical identities stuck or, or rooted in the past. And uh, Self-knowledge is a way of, of making sense of, of why we care about ourselves, right? When we know what matters to us, we understand why, you know, we, we pay so much, um, you know, time and attention to pursuing the things that matter to us. Right. So what I argue then is that uh, self-knowledge is a self-regarding duty. You have a duty to pursue a certain kind of self-knowledge. And I think that grief is a particularly um, fruitful uh, opportunity for the acquisition of the self-knowledge. So the, the duty falls out of the fact that um, grief is a particularly uh, fecund, you know, source, I think, of, of, of information about ourselves, about what it is that, that matters to us. I mean, when someone dies and we grieve them, we're kind of learning, right, about them, but we're also learning about ourselves. We're learning what uh, place, what role that person had in our practical identities, and we're kind of learning what mattered to us. Right. I mean, I think that it may sound strange, but I think, uh, you know, oftentimes we're maybe not as 
self-aware, right, about our own values as we think we are. And one of the ways that uh, we can become more aware is when something that's kind of catastrophic for our values happens. And and, and one one instance of that is someone um, dying, right, that, you know, our own values have predicated upon, right, uh, that we've had our practical identity invested in. Uh, as I as I say in another uh, article of mine, I think you know grief is a kind of an emotional data dump in a way, right? All this stuff comes out, right? This sort of you know this kind of you know fountain of different emotions, uh, emotions about the deceased, but also emotions about ourselves. So I, I think that the duty here is a duty to sort of seize the opportunity that grief presents for a kind of um, ethical self knowledge. I think that we uh, forego that at, at our peril. Then great. So. Um... You've been you've been very generous with your time, and and there's a lot um, there's a, there's a lot of detail in the book that we haven't um, uh, uh, haven't um, um, explored. Um, but I do want to make sure uh, in, in the last couple of minutes we have together, um, uh, I want to give you the opportunity to say a little bit about how the book ends. The book ends with a um, a discussion about the tendency to medicalize grief, mm-hmm. to see grief as a kind of sickness, something that needs treatment uh, as such. Um, uh, and you argue against um, treating grief. Now, the grief might be accompanied by all kinds of things that are properly medicalized, you're quick to mm-hmm. do But, um, you know, you argue against treating grief as such, as, uh, as, as a way of being ill. Uh, can you say mm-hmm. a little bit about that, maybe just to tease readers, <laughs> potential <Sure>. readers? <laughs> sure. So let me just begin by saying what I'm not saying, okay, because I think this is a, a place where it's easy to be misunderstood. So I'm certainly not saying that persons whose grief becomes unmanageable, right, um, so difficult that they struggle in day-to-day life, that they shouldn't seek help either from you know, mental health professionals or from others. So I'm not suggesting that... Um, uh, that uh, mental health professionals have no role, right, in helping people manage grief. Nor am I suggesting that grief can't be a cause or a contributor to right, the development of certain kinds of uh, mental illnesses, right? I think people can develop, uh, you know, depression or anxiety, you know, as a, co- as a consequence of grief. So to be you know, as perspicuous as I can to sort of delimit what it is that, it, that that is in dispute here, what I'm denying is that we should think of gr- grief as itself an illness, right? It can be a source of um, a certain kind of suffering that, that medical uh, help may be useful uh, in addressing, or it can be um, a source of perhaps mental disorder. But what I want to um, perhaps put my foot down on is that I think we should be very wary of thinking of grief as itself a mental disorder. So it's not an illness, as, as I see it, and you know, grief can give rise to various kinds of, of difficulties we face, but we're not sick with grief. And my reasons for, for holding this are several, but I'll try to highlight a couple that I think are particularly interesting. One, I don't think there's anything sort of dysfunctional about it, right? I mean, usually when we think about somebody being ill, we think about there being something wrong with their bodies. And there's not a lot of evidence that I'm aware of that suggests that there's something wrong with people when they're grieving, right? There's not as if they have you know, sort of a, a brain lesion or some sort of neurological misfire or anything like that. Grief is, I think, natural and normal for social creatures like ourselves. And there's no, I think, reason to think that there's something about grief that renders it uh, sort of pathological, right? It's not a sort of bad condition for our bodies or minds to be in. Our, our bodies or minds are not malfunctioning um, when we're grieving. 
Secondly, right, to call something an illness is to, I think, uh, assert that it's bad. <laughs> you know, um, but uh, you know, as we were discussing earlier in in our conversation today, I don't think grief is bad for us necessarily. It can be, um, but I think it also presents a kind of opportunity for a certain kind of good. That it's a good that we should not run from or fear, um, but rather we should at least uh, embrace or or be open to. Um, and I would say that you know, grief is an instance of uh, how pain can sometimes be a reflection of good mental health. Right. To be in pain is not an indication that there's something wrong with you. It's an indication that there's something right with you. Um, you know, I've been having conversations with people about, you know, the COVID pandemic and the ways in which, you know, obviously it's led to a lot of grief because there's been a lot of, a lot of deaths, sadly. Um, but I don't think that, that, you know, we should think of what's going on uh, in the pandemic as a grief pandemic. Right. Uh, that would suggest that grief is is itself an illness. And I think that's not that's not possible. In fact, I think in the case of, of pandemic grief, pandemic grief is a healthy response to a very unhealthy situation in the world. Um, and finally, I would just mention, you know, that, that when we think of something as, as an illness, I think that that alters how we relate to it ourselves. So, you know, consider the difference between how we now talk about uh, alcoholism as opposed to the way it was thought of, say, half a century or more ago, right? So we now, I think, appreciate that alcoholism and other addiction disorders are just that. They're disorders, right? They, you know, arise from certain physiological facts about, about people. Um, they're not moral failings, right? They're not uh, sort of deficiencies of character or, or signs that one is, you know, sinful or something like that. And that's, I think, been a good change in a sense, right? I think it's been helpful to, to those who suffer from alcoholism and those who, who care about about those who suffer from alcoholism, to, to, to uh, if you will, sort of medicalize that phenomenon, right? Take it out of the realm of the moral and put it in the realm of, of the medical. But I think in the case of grief, the opposite holds true. I think there is a certain danger in inviting us to think of ourselves when we're grieving as uh, sick, right? Because, of course, when we think of ourselves as sick, we're likely to think of ourselves perhaps as a bit helpless. We're likely to think of ourselves as um, undergoing something that's atypical or abnormal. And in fact, I think grief is quite typical and quite normal. So I think I worry about the ways uh, in which the message that you know grief is an illness is likely to be received by us in, in our culture. I think we're likely to kind of come to see ourselves as see ourselves as problematic because we're grieving, when in fact I don't think we should think that grief is, is really a problematic phenomenon in that way. Well, um, that was uh, very helpful. Um, Michael, uh, you know, I want to thank you uh, for joining me on, on New Books and Philosophy. It's been really nice, uh, you know, uh, talking to you about uh, a really marvelous book. Well, thank you. I appreciate that compliment. And of course, I, I appreciate the invitation as well. Sure. Um, uh, my pleasure. Um, and before we go, thank you, listeners, uh, for joining us for our discussion on New Books and Philosophy of Michael Cholby's new book, which is titled Grief, A Philosophical Guide. It's newly published with Princeton University Press. I highly recommend it. Thanks for listening, and bye for now.